everyone and welcome. My name is Kirsten Cullenberg. I am the programs manager here at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We're having a few people just joining. So admitting everyone from the waiting room. I wanna thank you all for joining us um, for this Meridian Young Professionals program. I hope this is an opportunity for us to engage with and learn from each other on an important issue. For those of you who are not maybe non-members and are perhaps this is the first time engaging with the World Affairs Council, consider joining the council as a member. Memberships begin at $8 a month and include benefits like a free subscription to Foreign Policy Magazine and invitations to exclusive events, both online and in-person, once we're able to gather again. Until that time, we'll, be, we'll continue to do some virtual events and um, currently planning a service project to kick off our in-person Young Professionals programming in the fall. For more information on all of our programming, you can go to dfwworld.org or shoot me an email. I'll drop that in the chat in just a few minutes. You can also catch up on all of our past virtual webinars on YouTube and our YouTube uh, channel is DFW World. Now, before we get started, a little bit of housekeeping. You'll notice that you're all muted right now and I promise it will not stay that way. After we hear from our guest speaker, I will enable everyone's audio and open up the discussion to you. You can choose to participate like that or you can drop your comments and questions in the um, chat box below, whichever you prefer. As I mentioned in my reminder email to all of our attendees tonight, this is a young professionals event. While friends of all ages are welcome to stay and listen to our guest speaker, I do ask that young professionals really take charge during this discussion portion at the end of the program. Now, if there's an issue or if you have any questions for me as the host, go ahead and privately chat with me. You're welcome to do that at any time. Before we begin, now I'd like to welcome the council's new president and CEO, Liz Railsford. Liz has been with the council here in Dallas now for just a few months and comes to us from Washington, D.C., where she served as Chief, Chief Operating Officer at the World Affairs Council of America. I look forward to the ways you can continue to grow and excel under her leadership. Welcome, Liz. Thank you, Kirsten. And hello, everyone. Good evening and welcome to the Meridian first program of the year. Uh, I'm just going to say a few things, but really the point for me is just that I wanted to say hello to all of you, introduce myself and welcome you. I am so excited to meet you in person and I am sorry that we've not been able to do that for obvious reasons. Um, you know that we uh, have not been so active in the Meridian space lately, but we are rethinking uh, on that and getting started again. So we welcome your ideas. If you have them, we'd love to hear them. Uh, Kirsten mentioned the service project. I hope to join that if I'm able. And it's just really great to see all of you here. Thanks for sharing your time with us. And as Kirsten said, we'd love to have you as a member and I'd really love to meet you in person. So we will gather again as soon as possible uh, in person. Send us your ideas. We've got some fun things uh, in mind that we're uh, rolling around in our brains and there will be more more news to come about Meridian. Uh, and then about tonight, we are so excited to host Andrum. Kirsten will introduce her. Uh, this is an extremely important topic that Anne is devoting uh, blood, sweat, and tears to right now in her work. And uh, it's something that touches all of us. So uh, please stay tuned. 
ask her really good questions. She's ready for you. We uh, really value this group. We want you involved with the council. You are important to us. And so uh, thanks again for coming. Kirsten, thanks for having me. And Anne, thanks for joining us. And with that, I turn it back over. Thank you so much for that, Liz. Our guest this evening is Anne Drum. She's North Texas organizer for American Promise, a nonprofit organization founded in 2016 to advocate for a 28th constitutional amendment to combat the issue of unchecked political spending by corporations, unions, special interest groups, and wealthy individuals. Inspired by her commitment to action on the climate crisis, Anne works to rally her neighbors in our community to make meaningful change around big money and politics right here in Texas. Now, I know that Anne has a short presentation and then I'd like to open it up to our audience for discussion after. Take it away, Anne. All right, thank you, Kirsten. Thank you, Liz. Let me share my screen. So thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here tonight. My name is Anne Drum. I am the North Texas organizer for American Promise. American Promise is a nationwide cross-partisan network of Americans working to ratify an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to address unlimited, concentrated, and unaccountable money in our political system and secure equal rights, effective representation, and a more responsive government for generations to come. So regardless of how we identify politically, we, there are some values that we share as Americans. We believe that we are equal citizens entitled to equal representation in our government. We believe in human liberty and we strive to create an effective system of self-governance. But our political system is under stress. Our constitutional democracy is in urgent need of repair and renewal. And most Americans believe that government is run by a few big interests looking out for themselves, not for the interests of ordinary Americans. We have just been through the most expensive election in US history. Um, our federal races, the presidential and congressional races in 2020, cost about $14.4 billion, more than twice as much as was spent in the previous presidential election cycle in 2016. But the sheer enormity of money in the system is only part of the story. So money in politics takes several different forms. It's individual and political action committee donations to campaigns. It is outside spending by super PACs and dark money groups. And it's out of state money being given both to campaigns and spent by super PACs and dark money groups. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about all of these. But you know, how did we get to this point where the floodgates have been opened to money in our political system. The rules have changed over the last 40 years. Major decisions by the US Supreme Court have systematically dismantled most of the limits on political spending. It started with the 1976 decision of Buckley versus Vallejo that gave spending rights to corporations and other legal entities calling it free speech. 
And then in 2010, we had the Citizens United decision that married the ideas that money equals speech and corporations are people to hold the corporations can spend as much as they want to to influence the outcomes of our elections. And then a, another decision by the DC Circuit Court closely on the heels of Citizens United created the super PAC. There are other important cases in this line of decisions, but the bottom line is an explosion of money in politics, drowning out the free speech of ordinary Americans. So a very small percentage of Americans spends money to influence elections. This is the chart from the Open Secrets website. It's called the Center for Responsive Politics about individual donors in the 2020 election. Now there is some good news. Donations from small donors are up. These are donors represented by the black squares who give $200 or less over an, an election cycle. And in the 2020 election, small donor gifts made up about a quarter of the donations to federal candidates, parties, PACs, and outside groups. But the bad news is that our elections are still overwhelmingly dependent on money from big donors, those who give more than $200 in an election cycle. And a significant number of those big donors are billionaires or people who invest millions of dollars to influence both the selection of candidates and the outcomes of elections. Our allies at the organization Issue One just a few days ago issued a report saying that over about the last 11 years, 12 political megadonors and their spouses gave one in every $13 spent on federal elections. Um, the collective total of their gifts over that period of time was $3.4 billion. Half of these mega donors are Republicans, half are Democrats, and all of them are white. Let me tell you a story that illustrates the power of this donor class over public policy. Meet our earnest young Congressman from Texas. He is trying his best to represent his district's priorities, but the demographics of his district are changing and the opposing party has targeted his district as one that they want to flip. There is a wealthy out individual. He doesn't live in Texas, but that doesn't matter. He wants to invest several million dollars to help flip our congressman's district. So what can he do to influence the outcome of the next election? Well, he can give the maximum $2,900 to the campaign of our congressman's opponent. He can also give limited amounts of money to traditional PACs that in turn can donate to the campaign of our congressman's opponent. But he wants to do much more than this. He can give unlimited donations to as many super PACs as he wants to. He can give unlimited donations to as many dark money groups as he wants to. And he can spend his own money on radio, TV, newspaper ads, Facebook ads. And all of this spending is unlimited as long as it is independent of any political campaign. 
So our congressman knows that his district has been targeted and that he has to raise an enormous amount of money to prepare for the tsunami of spending that's going to be invested against his reelection. So he has to leave his Capitol Hill office every day and go over to a party office and sit down in a cubicle with a phone and a donor list and dial for dollars. We have a system that has turned our congressman into a telemarketer for reelection. Studies show that members of Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time raising money for reelection. That's time that they can't spend serving constituents' needs, studying issues, reading bills, and developing the relationships that will allow them to get stuff done. So under current Supreme Court jurisprudence, the only piece of this story that we can regulate is the amount that this wealthy individual can donate to the campaign of our congressman's opponent and to traditional PACs that we'll give to our congressman, congressman's opponent's campaign. All the rest of this picture, the donation to super PACs and dark money groups and the spending by those groups and the independent spending by our wealthy individual. We can't put any limits on all this spending because the court has said this is all free speech entitled to protection under the First Amendment. But we think the court is wrong. Money isn't speech. Money is power. Outside spending has exploded in the wake of the Citizens United decision. Outside spending is that spending by super PACs and dark money groups that is supposedly independent of campaigns. And while historically conservative groups have been the bigger outside spenders, that changed last year. The graph on the far right is 2020, where you can see that liberal outside groups for the first time overtook conservative outside groups in outside spending. But look at the total by liberal and conservative outside groups together. Outside spending doubled in 2020. If you look at how this has grown over the years, the Citizens United decision was in 2010. So you can see it started to get bigger in the presidential cycle in 2012, a little bit bigger in 2016, and then look how it jumped in 2020. We can't do anything about this outside spending without a constitutional amendment. Now, another thing that the 2020 election showed us is that both parties are equally adept now at playing the dark money game. So the dark money groups are the ones that don't have to disclose their donors. This is an article from Open Secrets talking about the record-breaking amount of dark money in the 2020 election, $1 billion, which largely was spent to the advantage of Democrats. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. 
You can see again um, how the Democrats dominated dark money spending in 2020. And this is what the article said. After years of dark money overwhelmingly boosting Republicans, this marks the first presidential election cycle where dark money benefited the Democrats. So I love this tweet by Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He said this, a Republican once told me, quote, if you want to get rid of dark money, you're going to have to raise a lot more of it. Okay, done. Now will you help us get rid of the damn stuff? The solution to dark money is twofold. It's disclosure through legislation, which we can do under current jurisprudence, plus a constitutional amendment to deal with the total amount of money in the system. Out-of-state money is also now a big issue. It's increased to the point that many, ele many elections that we used to think of as being local have now been nationalized. This graph from Open Secrets shows the percentage of donations in the congressional elections that came from out, out of state. And so the two lines on the bottom are the donations to uh, House Republican and House Democratic candidates, the red and the blue. And then the two lines on the top, donations from, to Senate Republican and Senate Democratic candidates. And as you can see, in all categories, donations crossing state lines to influence those races has risen significantly over the last two presidential election cycles. And again, the Democrats have turned the tables on the Republicans. This shows um, out-of-state donors to state-level candidates. So here we're not talking about donations to congressional candidates, but to candidates for state legislatures. And you can see that in 2012, um, outside donations largely went to the benefit of Republican state-level candidates. And then it evened up in 2016, and then Democrats just took off with the donations to state-level candidates in uh, 2020. And here in North Texas, I would say an example of this phenomenon was the race for the 24th Congressional District, um, which Beth Van Dyne um, holds, that's a congressional seat, but it was also a significant factor in state level races. So the system has been flooded with money, big money, dark money, super PAC money, out of state money, it's drowning out the voices of ordinary Americans. But we're optimistic that a constitutional amendment to address this problem can succeed because we know we have Americans on our side. There is deep support uh, among Republicans, independents, and Democrats for a constitutional amendment to address the problem of money and politics. Our advocacy task is to organize the grassroots pressure on Congress and state legislatures that will get us across the finish line. So we do have um, one version of a constitutional amendment that's been reintroduced into Congress by Congressman Ted, Ted Deutsch of Florida. Um, and I'll just read this to you. To advance democratic self-government, and political equality and to protect the integrity of government and the electoral process. 
Congress and the states may regulate and set reasonable limits on the raising and spending of money by candidates and others to influence elections. And then Congress and the states shall have the power to implement and enforce this article by appropriate legislation and may distinguish between natural persons and corporations or other artificial entities created by law, including by prohibiting such entities from spending money to influence elections. So keep in mind, the purpose of the constitutional amendment is to remove the obstacle that the Supreme Court put in place with the decisions in Buckley, Citizens United and other cases. The constitutional amendment is not legislation. Once you remove the obstacle and redefine political spending, then Congress has to get to work setting the rules for federal elections and states have to get to work setting the rules for state elections. And the rules that Texas sets for Texas elections are gonna be different from the rules that California sets for California elections. And in a federal system, that's the way it should be. But before we can set any limits at all, first we have to enable Congress and states to set those limits by passing and ratifying a constitutional amendment. Now, there are some other ideas about what the amendment should say. The conversation among constitutional scholars and advocates about what the language of the amendment should be is still very much an active conversation. But this is the version that right now has the greatest support in Congress. So I invite you to register for our free virtual nationwide uh, conference coming up next week. It's our National Citizen Leadership Conference. And there's going to be featured speakers Monday evening and Thursday evening next week. They include Ted Deutsch, the congressman from Florida, who is introduced the constitutional amendment, but also Representative John Katko, a Republican of New York, who is a champion for this constitutional amendment. Uh, we're gonna hear from Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, um, retired of the US Army. He's the former chief of staff to uh, General Colin Powell. We're gonna hear from Representative Jamie Raskin of Maryland. He's gonna be interviewed by Deborah Winger, who is a member of the American Promise Board. That should be fun. We're gonna hear from Reverend Mitchell Hescox, who is the president of the Evangelical Environmental Network, and also Peter Schwartz, the co-founder of the Global Business Network. So there is a link in the chat where you can register for the conference. Again, it's free, just uh, come home and enjoy the, the programming at home on Zoom, of course. Here in North Texas, we have a resolution in the state legislature, which we're using to build support among state lawmakers and prepare for the day when there is going to be a conversation in Austin about ratification of this constitutional amendment. And one thing I ask you to do is please write a letter to your elected representatives. And I would ask you to look at the link in the chat and go ahead and copy it and open it in your browser as we are in our Q&A period tonight. This is an opportunity for you to tell elected officials in your own words why you would like them to deal with this issue of money and politics. And we want to deliver 
letters from constituents in the lobby day meetings that we are in the process of setting up right now. We've got at least four and I hope six or seven lobby day meetings over the next couple of weeks and we want to deliver your letters. So I'd be really grateful if you would just take a couple of minutes tonight and open this link and fill out the form so that we can produce a letter that we can deliver to members of Congress and also to your state legislators. You are our best advocates and it's really an important way that you can support our Lobby Day volunteers. So thank you so much for doing that. And so I appreciate your attention. I am very much looking forward to the conversation. And um, these are our, uh, our social media links. Um, if you have any if you're interested in following our work, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or send me an email at AmericanPromiseNTX at gmail.com. So I'm going to stop my screen share and let's go into some conversation. Great. Well, thank you so much for that, Anne. One of my biggest questions coming into this was why a constitutional amendment? And I so appreciate how you laid it out in front of us that really it's removing that, you know, the, the barrier set by the Supreme Court. Um, so I particularly want to begin with this question before I open it up to our audience and attendance. Why is this issue of dark money and out of state money in politics such an important subject for young professionals to stay engaged on? You know, the, the future of American politics belongs to us. The future of America belongs to us. So why, what forces are out there that would prevent, that are using this money to prevent the future that we all want to see come alive? It is an important subject for you to focus on because every single issue that you care about, every issue that impacts your future lives is affected by money and politics. So I came to money and politics through climate change. And the, the, the documentation of the effect of big money on dissuading Congress, not just from responding to the crisis elements of climate change, but also the opportunity elements of climate change. Absolutely. It is very well documented, but climate isn't the only issue. Um, healthcare, particularly the opioid crisis is another big one where money has played a role. So, you know, if we want a functional government that can respond to these interrelated wicked problems of our future, then we just have to deal with this fundamental problem so that we can open up more voices in the system, more ideas in the system, more possibilities, make the system more functional for all of the issues we care about. Absolutely, and I know that this group on the call tonight, we're young professionals are, that are incredibly involved, engaged in our community. So I do anticipate that we'll get some of those letters to our representatives, both in our state house and uh, the, at the federal uh, level. So I encourage everyone to do that. I'll be following up as soon as we, we wrap up here tonight. So another question I have is, you mentioned that this is an incredibly popular um, position to, to you know, the, what you're advocating for. Um, and that you know, it's popular everywhere except inside the beltway. So why would a legislator who, you, know, they, you mentioned that they do spend a lot of their time 
um, basically telemarketers raising money. But why would a legislator who receives the money and who, um, you know, you, you mentioned that money is power, why would they vote and pass legislation down the line that reduces that power, that, that, that reduces their ability to hold on to those positions? And what, what can we do about it besides writing letters? We have to, we have to show them that an alternative is available. I don't think that members of Congress particularly like the system that they're working under. And, you know, a lot of people go to Washington wanting to address issues that they're passionate about and they get sucked into a dysfunctional system. This is not about individual corruption. This is about a dysfunctional system. And if we can paint a picture of a more functional, productive, system, a more pleasant environment for them to work in, then I think we can get their support. And, you know, like you say, none of them like fundraising. And one of the big complaints you hear from people after they retire from Congress is how much they hated the fundraising element of their job. So we want to rescue them from the, the demands of fundraising. And, um, and we want to give them more opportunities to engage with their constituents. We want to help, help them divert their attention back to their constituents that they are there to serve instead of being forced to spend so much of their energy focused on the priorities of the funder class. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you see this big money in politics affecting Texas specifically? You mentioned the race in the 24th and the 2020 cycle, but how do you see it affecting other races and other issues here in North Texas? And then currently we're going through um, local election cycle. Um, if you haven't voted, make sure that you go out on election day and do that. But how do you see it affecting North Texas specifically? You know, I think the big problem is the out-of-state money. And, and out-of-state money works in the initial stages to influence the candidate selection. So if you're thinking about running, say, for state legislature, or I would say now even city council, you've got to demonstrate an ability to raise money. And if you think your ability to raise money is going to be to appeal to out-of-Texas interests, then maybe you feel like that's the road you've got to go down to demonstrate your credibility, your viability as a candidate. So the money is, is influencing candidate selection as well as outcomes of elections. And it's filtering down to the legislative level, to the local level. We know good and well that there is out-of-state money, super PAC money, and dark money weighing in on local elections right now. And, you know, I just think that we should be the ones to choose who our candidates are, and we shouldn't force candidates to jump through an enormous hoop of demonstrating fundraising prowess in order to qualify to step forward and offer themselves in service to uh, prospective constituents. That's just wrong. Yeah, that's a great question. We have a question coming in. We have a few questions coming in from our audience and I'll remind the audience that in just a moment, 
I will enable your um, audio and optional video if you'd like to ask a question to Anne directly, we can get a discussion going. But a really good question comes in from one of our viewers, Hunter. Why do you frame the issue as out-of-state money instead of out-of-district money? And what does a state border have that district borders don't? Well, out-of-state just, you know, opens up the, the money to coming from anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but whether you would like to see limits based on a, a district or a state, um, and, and I, I, I think both are, are credible possibilities, the reality is we can't do either one right now. So if you're wanting to write legislation limiting how much can go to a congressional candidate, how much you can donate to a congressional candidate or how much you can donate to a super PAC that's weighing in on a congressional race if you don't live in that district or if you don't live in that state, however you want to write that legislation, right now we can't enact that legislation because either way that you write it, it's interpreted as a violation of free speech under current jurisprudence. We have another question. What changes to campaigns do you think that citizens will see if this amendment and the subsequent legislation in, on both the federal and state level um, if they're, if they're passed? What changes in, in, in the day-to-day -day ins and outs of an election? Will we well, see? first of all, we think that this reform is gonna help open up the playing ground to more candidates. It's gonna make more candidacies viable because we're gonna reduce the fundraising hoop that prospective candidates have to jump through to even be seen as viable. So more different types of people with different perspectives, different issue emphases can step forward and run for office. And I think that we will also see candidates and elected officials being more responsive to constituents because under the current system, they're, they really are forced to be responsive to their funders. And, and it, it takes their energy and attention away from the needs and priorities of their constituents. So more different types of candidates and a system that is more responsive to those elected officials' constituents. I'm interested to see down the line if, if we do see this future for campaigning here in, in, in our country, how creative campaigns will, will get with the money that they are able to receive from um, small donations, things like that. We've seen in the last, um, I'm not sure when, when it started, but the introduction of systems like Act Blue and now in Red. So we, so those small donations coming in, I, I imagine that's that's a lot of where the out-of-state small dollars come from. Is that correct? Well, a lot of the out-of-state money is big money. Okay. Um, you know, the 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 twelve billionaires who have invested three point right. four billion over the last eleven years, mm -hmm. um, they're investing that money over um, over state lines. You know, the growth though in small dollar donations is a good thing in my mind, something to be encouraged. And we think that this is the kind of fundamental reform that will help small dollar um, 
funding schemes get traction. So there are some places around the country where small donor programs are being attempted. And while that is not specifically part of our advocacy, if you are interested in seeing more experiments in small dollar funding like matching programs or voucher programs, then you're gonna be more likely to see those experiments proliferate if we can get this fundamental reform enacted. Because this reform is gonna address some of the pushback from the big donors that aren't interested in seeing small dollar donor programs take off. Absolutely. Well, now what I've done is I have allowed all of our participants to be, be able to unmute yourselves to engage in this conversation. I'll continue to ask questions, but if you'd like to ask a question to Anne directly, please feel free to en en enable your audio and video. We can get a good conversation going. What is the system? Can you remind us of how a constitutional amendment gets passed? Sure. So the way we have passed all 27 previous constitutional amendments is that both chambers in Congress have to pass the identical amendment language out with a two thirds majority. So two thirds of the Senate and two thirds of the US House pass the amendment out and then it gets ratified by three quarters of the states which right now would be 38 states. So, so far, 22 state legislatures are on record as being supportive of this amendment. They have passed resolutions calling on Congress to pass an amendment and send it down to the states for ratification. So 22 are on record as supporting it. We need 38. So that's, you know, that's the challenge is to build the support in the remaining 16 states that will get us, um, get us ratified. So how close are we? Well, right now we know that 22 states have said that they're on board. So do you see this being a long fight? Um, you, you mentioned, you know, in our conversation earlier, this doesn't have to be the 28th Amendment. Um, in, in the past with the, the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment, we, that's spanned such a long period of time. How long do you see this taking? You know, I hope that it wouldn't take very long, again, because we've got so much public support for this. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you're right, the next, the next amendment is the 28th, and we certainly hope that our amendment is the next one, but, you know, there's at least one other um, candidate out there that, that's getting a lot of attention. But whether we're the 28th amendment or the 29th amendment, um, we think that we can get this done pretty quickly. And in fact, American Promise has a stated goal of having the amendment passed and ratified by July 4, 2026, which is our nation's 250th birthday. Wow, wouldn't that be an amazing birthday gift? Yeah. Um, a reminder to everyone, you're welcome to enable your audio and video and ask a question if you, if you have any for Anne. Um, so another question I have is how is this amendment the same, is this amendment the same or how is it different from other big democracy reform bills that we've seen passed recently? Uh, for example, the House HR1 bill. Right, so the House, the HR1 bill, the one that the House passed earlier this year is a 
comprehensive reform bill um, that now is before the Senate. It's got lots of stuff in it, uh, including um, some, some small dollar um, matching um, ideas, like I talked about a minute ago. It also has some language that is supportive of this constitutional amendment, but it is not the vehicle by which you get a constitutional amendment. So HR1, HR stands for House Resolution. It is a bill. To get a constitutional amendment, you have to have a joint resolution. You have to have HJR and SJR. So you have to have, it's a different type of bill with a different nomenclature that has to be passed by both chambers of Congress. So, you know, HR1 has, is, contains language that's supportive of what we're doing, but HR1 cannot be the vehicle for accomplishing the constitutional amendment that we need to win. We have another question coming in from Susan. Uh, her comment is President Obama probably agrees. Who on the Republican high profile is behind this effort? So we're going to hear from Representative Katko of New York at our conference next week because he is a co-sponsor of um, Ted Deutsch's resolution in the House. Um, so he is a Republican champion. Um, the challenge with that particular resolution is that the co-sponsors are Democrats. And so there's a perception of that it's a partisan vehicle. Um, there are Republicans who are very interested in getting a resolution introduced that would have bipartisan support from the very beginning, that it would have significant Republican support from the very beginning. And there is language that's being considered by some of those Republicans. And we are hopeful that a version of the amendment with some somewhat different language from the one that I read to you tonight will be introduced later this year with bipartisan support. You'll see more Republican names on it. So that is the goal that we are working toward in our lobby day meetings, particularly over the next couple of weeks. It's always interesting to me, um, as I've mentioned, this, um, this group here is incredibly engaged, I would imagine. It's always interesting to me when you think about big money in politics, you always want to demonize the other side of the aisle. And so it's really fascinating to see the numbers coming, coming through in your presentation. Where else can we, what other resources can our attendees tonight use to find out where money is coming from in their elections, um, maybe that they've supported in the past and, and to keep track of elections or candidates that they're supporting now? Well, the Open Secrets website is a great resource. So this is the Center for Responsive Politics and they track money and politics at the federal level. So the presidential and congressional campaigns. And I really encourage everyone to take a look, opensecrets.org because they do a really good job of explaining what the data means and explaining complicated topics like dark money and identifying you know, the big individual mega donors, ranking them and breaking down um, data by campaign. So if you're interested in a particular race, 
you know, if you want to look and see, uh, for example, in the Senate race last year between John Cornyn and MJ Hagar, uh, if you wanted to see, you know, where the money came from and how much of it was in state and how much of it was out of state. If you wanna learn more about the super PAC spending and the dark money spending, Open Secrets is a great resource for that. Um, there is an online news website called The Fulcrum, F-U-L-C-R-U-M, which is really focused on money and politics and has um, news and opinion pieces from a lot of different sources and allies in the movement. So that's another resource that I would highly recommend. Well, great. It, it sounds like we're about to have another question from one of our audience members any minute, but I want to quickly, um, oh, I, I, had, I had something in my head and it's, it's suddenly gone. Isn't that the worst when that happens? Um, we have a question coming in from another audience member. You have suggested amendment words on your website. Legal language can be so difficult to understand sometimes, and I totally understand that. Can you talk more about the need for precise and specific language in order to pass an amendment like this? And how many revisions have amendments historically gone through before being passed? Thank you so much for that question, Caroline. Um, you're right. The language has to be precise because it is the language that courts will use to um, decide questions that arise after the amendment is passed. Um, so I'll give you an example. The question of whether you use the word shall or may regulate. So Congress and the states shall regulate and Congress and the states may regulate have two very different meanings. And so you have, you know, congressional, I'm sorry, constitutional scholars will weigh in on the ramifications of one choice over the other. And that informs the ultimate decision by Congress about which version of an amendment they want to pass. So yes, language in constitutional amendments has to be very specific and it is informed by scholarship, you know, of, by people that have studied constitutional jurisprudence over the last, you know, more than 200 years. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of amending a constitutional amendment, I think if that was the question, um, really you, that doesn't happen. You pass the constitutional amendment and then courts interpret the language of the amendment. But of course, we do have the unique example of prohibition where we passed the constitutional amendment outlawing alcohol and then realized we've made a big mistake. And so we passed another constitutional amendment undoing that. But that is a unique example in American history. Absolutely, it always seems to me like it was the big, um, oh no, what have we done? Yeah. Uh, mistake in American history. It seems like we have a question coming in from Sam. Sam, go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come talk to us. I uh, really appreciate you being here. Um, the, I actually, I have, I have a couple of questions surrounding this, but I think the one that's most pressing right now um, is that how do we, I think, you know, as you, your research has shown, uh, right, a lot of political leaders in the U.S. and a lot of Americans would, would be uh, in favor of, of this kind of amendment um, or implementing some form of restrictions on uh, political spending. 
But given what's going on, what else is going on right now in the country, right, with pandemic management, um, with um, issues of racial justice, um, with issues of police brutality, right, so many other high-profile domestic issues happening right now, how do we find a place in um, our, like, our current political narrative for this issue when there are so many other issues domestically that could ostensibly be seen as, as more important or more pressing? You're right. We, we have a lot of competition in the news environment, but we believe that this one is fundamental. It's foundational. So a lot of the issues that we're struggling with as a country are related in one way or the other to money and politics. And I mentioned climate change as an example. Um, but an, another example would be, you know, gun safety. Everybody's aware that there is a relationship there too. So the argument is that you deal with the foundational dysfunction in our political system in order to enable solutions. And you know, I would I would argue that the money in politics drives a lot of the problem that we're seeing. It drives the the cynicism. It drives the dis disaffection that Americans feel about their government. It drives the rhetoric to the extremes and it helps raise the temperature of the political debate. And if we can deal with foundational problems like this, then maybe we can help bring the temperature down and help Americans remember that regardless of our political affiliation, we do as Americans share certain values and that we can build on those shared values to find some answers to these very difficult problems. Absolutely, and that's such a good point. Um, I think us as young people, we really want to see that future of um, some more tempered um, tempers um, and uh, working together to find solutions no matter which side of the aisle you fall on. Of course, sticking with, with your core values. It looks like we have a question from Alana. And Sam, I think you, you said you might have another question. You're welcome to ask that one after Alana's question. Thank you, Kirsten. And thank you, Anne, for being here. I was wondering if your movement includes specific restrictions um, on these unchecked dollar amounts. Do you have specifics on what those caps would be? And are there any other democratic examples around the world that are already following your proposed change? Sure. So unfortunately, I do not have model legislation that I can show you. Um, in general, we want to see some limits on what wealthy individuals can give to super PACs. I think that is really important. Uh, perhaps some limits on what those super PACs can spend to influence uh, any particular race. We want to see disclosure. We really should not have a billion dollars of dark money in our system where we don't know the source of that money. We don't know the agenda behind that money. And some of that money is foreign money, I can guarantee you. Um, as to other democratic systems, how they carry out their campaign finance, unfortunately, I have a hard enough time just understanding some of the complexity of U.S. <laughs> campaign finance, so I have not made an effort to research other countries. 
Um, I would love to, to have an answer to that. And I wish I had a, an answer for you tonight, but unfortunately I just really am not well informed in that area. So I wouldn't want to attempt to answer. Well, perhaps that's something we can expand on in future young professionals programming comparing sure. systems from across the world. Well, I wanna take this moment if, uh, to encourage everyone, if you have another question, please ask. We'll be here for another, um, couple, another couple minutes. But a uh, reminder to everyone that Anne dropped a link in the chat. If you'll scroll all the way to the top, write a letter to your elected officials explaining why you want them to address money in politics. Follow the link, it's so easy. I'm going to be doing it right after. So that's everyone's little bit of homework for tonight. And you know, so you don't just have to do one tonight, you can keep doing it. Uh, I promise your, your representatives want to hear from you on issues like this, so please stay engaged there. And of course, register for the free national virtual conference with programs Monday and Thursday evening next week for American Promises Conference. The link is also in the chat. So I want to, um, if no one else has another question, I wanna thank Anne for your time. Um, and this has been such an informative program. Um, and do you have any last words for, for our attendees? Um, no, I just really appreciate your interest. Um, thank you again for supporting our Lobby Day volunteers with your letters. And if you have any interest in getting involved with us, uh, we have a monthly chapter meeting, which of course we're doing by Zoom right now. <laughs> it's the third Tuesday every month at 7 p.m. I would be happy to talk to you uh, about your particular interest in this subject. So you can email me at AmericanPromiseNTX at gmail.com, NTX for North Texas. Or you can just visit our website, AmericanPromise.net to get information about um, the organization and um, really appreciate your interest in, in strengthening our system of government so it serves all of us. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Well, as you know, the World Affairs Council, as the Young Professionals of the World Affairs Council, of course we are engaged internationally. Um, so we want America to be that example for the world when it comes to democracy and our values. So stay engaged there. I want to invite all of our young professionals on this call to keep engaged with us. As Liz mentioned in her opening, we have a couple of really great reimagining processes going through right now. And one of those is the Young Professionals Program. We've taken a kind of a bit of a break during COVID because as a young professional myself, if I were invited to one more Zoom call, I was going to scream. So I am excited that you were all here. Um, stay engaged. We'll have another couple program announcements coming very soon. And I hope that you'll join us when we do resume in person this fall. Thank you all so much for um, joining tonight and have a great evening.